Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. My name is Mark Robinson, and I'm the executive pastor here at Wildwood. Uh, for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet, and uh, we are going to be walking through a five-week series together over the next uh, five Sundays. Our senior pastor, Bruce Hess, is on vacation during the month of July, and so we're going to take the opportunity to be together to look into God's Word uh, together over the next five weeks. And you know, as I was thinking about what it is that God would have us to look at, the part of His Word that He would want us to look more deeply at during July, uh, I thought of a recent set of experiences uh, that are going on at the Robinson House. Uh, and, and really, it, it's something that happens every night. Uh, you see, every night at our house, at the designated time, uh, we begin to start the launch sequence to take Joshua, our three-year-old, to bed. Um, we begin to herd him, if you will, towards the bedroom. And, and it's at this point that he launches a counteroffensive. Um, he brings up every possible reason why he shouldn't go into his bedroom. He, he, he's thirsty. He wants to watch a little more TV. He wants to play a little more with toys. He, he wants to tell us that he loves us. He wants to go pet the dog. He wants to do whatever he can do to prolong the day, to not go to bed. But, but you know what? He's very predictable. We know that he's going to do this every single night. And so my wife and I have come up with our own counteroffensive to his counteroffensive, and that is that we say this, do you want to read a story? Well, my son is like me. He likes a good story. He can't turn that down. And night after night, we take him to the bedroom and sit down in order to read a story together. You know, and on a table in his room is a stack of books. It's got all the usual suspects. There's Disney, there's Dr. Seuss, there's, there's all of those things. But there's also these books that are uh, called read-along Bible stories by Ella Linval. And these are actually some of his favorites right now. Uh, these books. And so uh, as we sit down, you know, he's got his favorites, just like all of us, uh, got favorite stories. And, and so there's certain stories that he wants to read over and over and over again. And so because of that, uh, I've gotten very familiar with some of these Bible stories again and seeing them from fresh eyes, from the eyes of a father. You know, as I've sit there night after night reading these stories as a father to my son, I've come to realize that these very familiar Bible stories are actually stories from our Heavenly Father to us that reveal to us certain things about him that he wants us to know. And what we're going to do over the next five weeks is we're going to look at five of these stories in order to see a little more in depth of what God would have us to do as grown-up people, but yet children of our Heavenly Father, how he would want us to respond to the truth of his word found in some of these very familiar Bible stories. We're going to begin that today by looking at Genesis chapter 1 and the story of creation. But before we get there, let let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for this place that you have set aside for us to look at this story together. Father, I pray that you would would be the one who tells it to us today, that your spirit would work through me to help us to get a greater, more clear image of who you are, and that you would cause our hearts to to, to well up with joy and, and appreciation and admiration and understanding because of the wonderful Father that you are to us. I pray that you would protect me this morning from saying anything that you wouldn't want said. But Father, if I do say something that you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would quickly be forgotten. But any words that I say today, Father, that you would want us to hear, I pray that we would remember them, that we would believe them, and that we would apply them in the power of your Spirit. 
that we might leave here shaped more into the image of your son. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about four years ago, my wife and I found out some great news. And that was that God was blessing us with a child. We didn't know his name. We didn't know his sex yet. But we knew that God had provided us with this child. And uh, that immediately started a set of activities in our house. We began to do a lot of things to prepare for the baby's arrival. We began to make plans about our schedule. We began to make plans about, uh, you know, what, what it meant to be a parent, you know, relationally, what that was going to be. But we also began to make physical preparations within our house for a baby's arrival. You, know, you get the, the plug covers in and you, you, you bolt all the cabinets shut and you, you do all of this stuff, right? But, but eventually you're going to end up in the room that the baby's going to sleep in and you begin to decorate that room for the child's arrival. You begin to create an environment that is suitable for that child. And, and you know, you, you go and you pick out paint and you paint the walls and you get a wallpaper border and you stretch it across the walls and you go and, and you buy a lot of cool stuff, you know, monitors and gadgets. And, and I had a friend one time tell me that the, the, the smaller the child, the bigger the stuff. The bigger the child, the smaller the stuff. Definitely true. You go into a baby store, everything's giant. Big animals, big cribs, big everything. And we, we got all this cool stuff and we brought it home. We put it in and we decorated this place, this, this perfect environment. Uh, for our baby to come home to. Um, and, you know, when we, we saw this, this, this place, you know, we, we, we did all of that, not just so that we could decorate a room of our house. We did all of that decorating because there was one who was to occupy the house that we wanted to make the right environment for. And, you know, if you're a parent, you've gone through that process, haven't you? You've gone through the process of knowing that a child is coming home and you did everything you could to make your place ready for them. You know, when I read Genesis chapter 1 in the creation story uh, this past week and was reflecting on it, you know what I saw in that story was something very similar. That the God of the universe created this universe, created everything in it, created this planet and everything on it to create the perfect environment for you and for me. He was going to bring us home to have a relationship with us in this place. And that's the image of creation we get in Genesis 1. And that's what I hope that we'll see today as we look more in depth at one of these father stories, the story of creation from Genesis 1. Now, we're going to look at all of chapter 1, which is 31 verses long. And any time you look at a chapter that's 31 verses long in, in, a, in a short time span, uh, you're invariably going to let somebody down because I'm not going to talk about the thing that you want us to talk about. Uh, you know, some of you are going to wish that we, we, why did you leave day seven off? Why did you not do Genesis chapter two, verses one to three, day seven about the Sabbath? And, and my only response to that, you know, would be, hey, it's Sunday, just give it a rest. No, <laughs> uh, no it, it, that, that, that could be a great message in and of itself. Um, but due to time, we're, we're not going to extend into chapter 2 today. We're just going to look at chapter 1. Uh, you may be going, how come you're not going to talk about how the first 31 verses of the book of Genesis, what, what they have to say about the age of the earth? And uh, my response to that, that's, that's an interesting study, and it would be worth some conversation, but we're not going to tackle that this morning, because I don't think it's the, the central message that God has for us from Genesis 1. I think the central message that God has for us in Genesis 1 has to do with his creation of a world for you and for me. 
And we're going to take a look at that today. And so if you've got a Bible, open up to Genesis 1, very beginning, the book of beginnings, the first page of actual Bible. When you get past the table of contents and the maps and measurements and all whatever else your Bible's got in the front, when you get to the actual Scripture text, that's where we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And as we look at this passage today, we're going to see really three things that talk about this father's story of creation, the central message of Genesis 1. The first thing that we're going to see is that we have an eternal father. We have an eternal father. This is his story, and he is eternal. We see that in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. It says this, it says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You know, as this passage begins to unfold, the very first words are in the beginning. This means that in the, in the time that we know of as the beginning of all things, the time when everything we know was created, before that happened, the moment before that was the beginning. And in the time that was the beginning, this passage tells us, God already was. In the beginning was God. God was already there. Everything we know had a beginning date, except God. Every piece of matter, every human being, every animal, every plant, all of that stuff, every star, every planet, every pr- particle, every, everything had a beginning point except God himself. In the beginning, nothing was but God. God was in the beginning. And this passage mentions it in terms of God, Elohim in the Hebrew, probably a reference to the creator God, our Father. But the rest of Scripture spells out for us that this was not just a moment for God the Father, but this was a Trinitarian moment. All of God was present. Father, Son, and Spirit at the point of creation. Genesis 1-1, God was there. Flip over, if you will, to the book of John, chapter 1. Or you can see it on the screen behind me. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the Word, we know from the rest of the book of John, is a reference to Christ. It's in the time that was the beginning, Jesus already was. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In the time that was the beginning, God the Father already was and God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God already was. In the beginning, they were there, nothing else. God the Father, God the Son and Genesis 1-2 tells us God the Holy Spirit. It says that the earth was without form and void, Genesis 1-2, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the time that was the beginning, nothing was there except the Trinitarian God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Predates it all, had no beginning point, was eternal. Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem, but he was with God from the beginning because he is God. Father, Son, and Spirit, our Trinity God, was all that there was at the point 
beginning T minus one. That's all that was there was God. Now that means that God predates it all. That means that God created it all. God is the one who had the idea. Nobody put a gun to God's head because there was no one else around. Nobody put a gun to God's head and said, you must create. Create an earth. Create people. Create Shamu. Create redwood trees. Create anything. No, nobody said that because there was no peer. God by himself was in existence in eternity before there was anything else. And that eternal God made the decision to create because he deemed it good. You see, we have an eternal father. There was nothing else in existence. It wasn't like the universe was this chaotic mess and God said, eventually I've got to clean that thing up and make some sense of it. No, there was nothing but God himself. And God himself said, let us create the heavens and the earth. You see, we have an eternal Father who exists outside of everything. You know, that's why God doesn't want us to worship a creation. That's why God doesn't want us to worship something that we made up. That's why God doesn't want us to worship another person. God doesn't want us to worship those things because they're inferior. He knows at the beginning it's just Him. There was, he looked around the room and there was no one else there. He has no peer. He has no equal. The Trinitarian God of the Bible is the eternal one. And Genesis 1-1 begins to tell us that. There is a God and there is no one like him. He was the one who was present in the very beginning. And he decided to create. And you know, if God was present at the beginning, then that means that this planet is his idea and he takes a responsibility for it. And he'll bring it to culmination at some point. He has plans and purposes. That's the God that we know, the God of the Bible. You know, if we were to see something happen in this planet, we would want to know, well, well, where did it come from, right? And we would want to go back to something at the beginning. I'll give you an example. Wildwood is a church that has a security system on the outside. If you come here after hours, you have to enter a code to gain access to this building. I mean, it's sad that a church has to have access codes, but... The world in which we live, after hours, the building's locked and there's code access. So if, if something happens after hours, we're able to go back and check the logs to see who was in the building last with the idea that they were probably responsible for what happened or at least know what happened. And the same thing is true here. If we look at the Genesis 1 passage, it tells us that God, we checked the log, God was the one who was there. Therefore, God is responsible for the creation of the earth. And so he deserves our honor. And you know, this, this idea that God is the creator, the eternal one, and, and that he's the one that created all that there is, places him in authority over all things. You know what? One of the implications of this for us is that we shouldn't allow anyone to tell us that stuff is an eternal constant, that matter has always been. You know, no museum, no textbook, no professor, regardless of how many degrees they have, could ever say that this place has always been. Because the reality is, the Bible tells us that there was a time 
before anything was created, that there was one who was eternal. And he decided to create it. This earth, everything we know, had a beginning point. And you know what? That is not just something that the scripture indicates, but that's a truth that even science is beginning to observe. Uh, Dr. Mike Strauss, who's an elder here at Wildwood and a professor of physics at OU, says this. You see the quote on the screen. He says, until about 1960, there was a general consensus in the scientific community that as we learn more about the physical universe through our investigation, we would be able to explain all that we observed and that this would render any belief in God unnecessary or irrelevant. However, just the opposite has happened. As our knowledge of the origin and complexity of the physical world has increased, we have come to realize that the universe is so intricate and well-conceived that a number of scientists have proposed that the universe must be the product of an intelligent designer. It's this idea that science is pointing to the fact that this earth had an origin and there must be someone who stands outside of this universe that was able to create it. That's exactly what Genesis 1-1 indicates. There's an agnostic astrophysicist named Robert Jastrow. So this is someone who doesn't embrace the truth of Genesis 1, but this is his observation of the evidence in science. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. In other words, what he's going to say is this is bad news for scientists. He says, the scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. In other words, scientific observation of the world is pointing to the fact that there must be something eternal and intelligent outside of us that created the world in which we live. And if that exists, as Genesis 1-1 and even as science is beginning to indicate, then we have some responsibility to to that God. We need to understand why did he create? If he didn't have to, why did he create us? How does he want us to live in relationship with him? That's why we need to look at the rest of the story. See, it begins with our eternal father. But it continues with the understanding that our eternal father has prepared this place for us. Our eternal father has prepared this place, the the earth in which we live. He's prepared it for you and for me. Beginning in verse 3 and and reading a number of verses here in Genesis 1, it says this. It says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the land become dry underneath it, and let it appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth... And the waters that were gathered together he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let us bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And so we progress through the majority of creation, right? The first five and a half days of creation, we just... We just read through. Now, when you, when you hear those things read, uh, do you notice that God completed each act of creation by saying something? What did God say? It's good. It is good. It is good. It is good. God just said, let there be, and there was, and then after he saw what he had created, whether it was light or planets or, or stars or seas or dry land or plants or animals or whatever it was, after he created it, he said... It is good. Now, the question we ought to ask is, what does he mean good? Does, does God just mean, wow, that was really cool? You know? I mean, it's one possibility to say, right, that God created something and he just took a step back and goes, wow, trees are really good. You know, look at that, look at that animal. That animal is really good. And there's a sense where that's true, right? God was pleased with what he created. He didn't make a mistake when he created the things that are on the face of the earth. We might quibble about the mosquito, but God had plans for all things. And he created them on the planet. And he stepped back and he said, this is good. That's one possibility. But, you know, another possibility, another layer of meaning to that statement and is good is that God was actually saying this earth is good for the inhabitants of humanity. In other words, God was saying, I'm creating this planet with a purpose. And everything he created made it more and more possible for humanity to live and to thrive on this planet. And every time he created something that would be beneficial to humans, he said, you know what, that, that's good. Think of the world in which we live without the sun. We wouldn't make it. We need the sun. So when God set the sun in the sky, he said, it's good. When God spaced the earth just so far from the sun and tilted us on an axis that would allow for life here, he said, that's good because humanity can now live on this planet. When God created waters, when he created the seas, when he created fresh water, when God created those things, he said it's good because he knew that humanity would need water in order to live. The way he was going to design us was going to require water in order for life to be sustained. And so when he, when he looked and he saw the waters on the earth, when he created that, he said it's good because it was good for humanity. When he created the plants and he scattered them all over the planet, he said it's good 
Because the plants would become food sources and shelter sources for humanity. Look at even the description of the plants that are given. Plants that bring forth seed, plants that bring forth fruit. Those are things that we eat. God said, it is good because I've created plants that will sustain humanity. When he created animals, he even describes them in human terms. He describes them like livestock, right? Uh, That's that's something that makes sense for humans, right? I I don't know that there are a lot of animals in the barnyard going, we're livestock, you're wild animals, you stay on the other side of the fence, they just don't do that. But, but from humanity's sake, there is a difference because livestock provide benefit to us. God populated the earth in a way that was good because it was good for the sustaining of human life. Now, when you, when you really stop and think that God has prepared this place for us, when, when, you, when you, you think about it this way, God prepared this place like a parent prepares the nursery for the child to come home. He decorated all there is for us. He was preparing a place for us, an environment well-suited for you and for me. It's really a, a pretty, pretty awesome thought that that's, what he was, that that's what he was up to. That means that when he scattered the stars in the sky at the far reaches of the universe, even though it might be thousands of years before a human would ever see it, you know, it was 1990 when the Hubble telescope went up and we were able to see things that we couldn't see before. God, at the point of creation, scattered stuff all the way out there so that eventually a human might look through that Hubble telescope and see that star and go, wow, it's bigger than we thought. So that we might, at some level, understand that God is bigger than we thought. Well, when God designed the earth, he designed it very microscopically, not just planets on the far edges, but very microscopically so that you could look under a microscope at things and break it down into protons and neutrons and electrons. It's very complex. It's very orderly. It all fits together. And God created it that way before anybody ever had a microscope to look through. And God created that that way so that when eventually someone would look through that microscope, they would go, wow, look at the detail. Look at the plan. When DNA was able to be examined and and these genetic codes were able to be seen, people would go, wow, it is way more complex than we ever dreamed possible. Pointing us to the fact that there is a divine intelligence outside of us. When the Rocky Mountains were strewn, when the Grand Canyon was formed, when the redwoods grew in California, God did it so that you and I would see it. And go, wow, there's a God of beauty. You see, this place was created for you and for me. And the scripture tells us that that God has a a, a special purpose for creation. And and that purpose for creation is that that it's always talking. Uh, The book of Psalms, chapter 19 The first six verses say it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The psalmist lets us know that the created things of God in this planet 
are always talking. The skies and the mountains and the animals, are, they're always giving forth something. They're always saying something. Well, what are they saying? Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 give us another idea. They say, for, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. See, God created this earth in such a way that it would always be talking and giving testimony to who God is. And if the earth is always talking, the question is, are we understanding what it's saying? When we see a sunset or, a, or a, a thunderstorm or a mountain or a seashore or whatever it is, or, or go to the zoo and see the diversity of animals that are on the planet, when we, see the, when we watch the Discovery Channel at night, when we watch a PBS documentary, when we see this stuff, are we understanding what God is trying to tell us through it? Because it's always talking and declaring the divine attributes, the invisible qualities, the complexity, the, the, the awesomeness, that the he's beyond us of our God. Have you ever stopped to just say, thank you, Lord, for creating a place just for us? See, the creation story, this father's story, tells us that an eternal God has prepared a place for us. And creation builds over six days to a climactic moment in verse 26 of chapter 1. Really, there is a crescendo of creation that builds to the climax in verse 26 to 31 that is the creation of humanity. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. You see, this last section, verses 26 to 31, show us this crescendo of creation, the climactic act that is the creation of humanity. And we see in there a number of things that make the creation of humans different and distinct from the creation of every other thing. See, when God created everything else, he said, let there be. Let there be light. Let there be animals. Let there be plants. Let there be. But when it comes to Humanity, what does God say? Let us make. You feel, you feel the difference? Let there be, let there be, let, let us make. God's leaning in. The, all of creation was building to prepare this place for humanity. And God rolls up his sleeves, personally gets involved, let us make. The, the us there, I believe, is another indication of Trinity. God is thinking in terms of 
the holy community, the Trinity, three in one, when he says, let us make. God has a special place for humanity. It's different in the way that he talks about it, let us make. He says, let us make in our own image. In our own image, let us make them. See, everything else, all the other animals and all the other plants are created according to their kind. Did you hear that when we read that earlier? According to their kind, he created animals. According to their kind, he created fish. According to their kind, he created trees. But according to the image of God, he created humanity. See, we're different. We're different. That means in, in some ways, we're more like God than we are a monkey. Because we were created in the image of God. Not, not anatomically, not in, in the fact that we have a heart and a brain and a, and a liver and all that kind of stuff. But we're more like God in the sense that of our immaterial parts, our soul, our spirit, our creative ability. All of those things are placed within us in a special way because God wanted to have a relationship with us. He made us not like an animal. He made us like himself. That he could relate to us in a different way. Let us make man, and let us make man in our image. And then he says, male and female, he created them. You know, it's interesting, every other thing of creation, I assume that they were created male and female because we don't just have one horse, right? Um, God created the earth in such a way that it would be procreated, that there would be animals that would, that would come after that. And so I'm guessing that there were male and female animals that were created, but there's no reference given to that. But when it comes to humanity's creation, he makes a point to say, male and female, he created them. The implication is that male and female together reveal the image of God in the world. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, some have wanted to say that there's, there's some kind of a hierarchy where men are more valuable than women or women are more valuable than men. But, but in Genesis 1, we find out that both men and women are necessary in the plan of God and of equal value to reflect the image of God in the world. When you get over into chapter 2, we find out that the one thing that was not good in creation is that man was alone. You know, I, I mentioned this first service, but I'm sure the, the women in attendance today could give a lot of reasons why it wasn't good for man to be alone. Um, but the reality is when God looked at it from a theological sense, it was not good for man to be alone because there was part of the image of God that was lacking until woman was added as well. You know, it's, there's some speculation as to why that is. You know, is it talking about, you know, men have certain character qualities and women have certain character qualities and it takes both of them? I mean, we could have some conversation about that. But I think one of the things that's implied here is that there is a sense where God exists in Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so... Humanity also has some diversity of roles within it, just as the person of God has Father, Son, and Spirit. Humanity has some unique responsibilities and look of men and women as a part of reflecting the image of God in this world. But it's interesting that humans are shown to be unique because God says, let us make, let us make them in our image, and let's differentiate male and female as they are a part of reflecting the image of God in the world. And the last way in which humanity is shown to be unique is that we're given a job. We're given dominion. 
We're said that we're to be stewards of the planet that we are placed within. God has prepared this place for us. At the crescendo of creation, He creates us, and then He gives us responsibility within this planet. The responsibility of having dominion over the planet uh, is an interesting one, especially interesting for us to think about today uh, because we live in a world right now that has a lot of emphasis on things that are green, right? Uh, the, the kind of this, this environmental uh, perspective that's, that's somewhat new um, to, to, the, to the world today. And in, in many ways, it's really good. In many ways, the, the environmental movement, being aware of the ecology of the world that we live in and being a good steward of the resources that we have on the planet, uh, that's anchored right back in Genesis 1 because God has given us a stewardship of the planet on which we live uh, that we might continue to sustain and be good for human life to live here. Um, but you know what? There's also uh, some bad news for the environmental movement in Genesis 1. And that is that it's very clear in Genesis 1 that humanity is at the top of the situation. There, there, is, there is no, there's not an equal sense where animals and humans, humans and trees are all on the same level playing field. In, in, the, in a biblical understanding of the world, uh, God created humans at the top of the chain on this planet. Now, we ought to operate on this planet with wisdom and we ought to operate with care. But we should never think that it's an equal decision on whether or not to lose a human life or the life of an animal, a human life or the life of a tree, a human life or the life of any other created thing on the planet. There's something unique about us. We were created in the image of God. Nothing else is on this planet. We were created, this place was created for us. And he's given us this job of having dominion over it. Now, when you, when you think about the implications of that statement for our lives today, uh, there's, there's several implications with it. Uh, the one, of, one of them that I want us to reflect on is, is this. Uh, have you ever thought that God loves you that much? Think about that. God created all of this stuff so that you would see it. God created planets in the far reaches of the galaxy so that you would see it. God created animals so that you would see it. God created the Rocky Mountains so that you would see it. God created sunsets so that you would see it. God created all that stuff to sustain life and so that you would see it and that you would understand the language that it's speaking, that God is great and awesome and that he loves you. God prepared this world for you the way a parent prepares the nursery for their child coming home from the hospital. If you're a parent, you've experienced that. You know what it means to set that room up, and you know the love that you're feeling about that. But, but think about this. Every single thing that you put in that room, the paint on the walls, the stuff that you hang, the stuff that you set in there, the giant stuffed animals, all the toys and the gadgets and the stuff, if there was a fire, you would leave every single bit of that there, and you'd grab your child and would run through the wall to get him out of that room. Because the child is why you did all of it. The child has value to you above anything else. And God has, you, have, you have value to God more than any mountain, more than any sea, more than any animal, more than anything else on the planet. People have value to God. Have you ever stopped to think that God thinks of you that way? Have you ever looked at a sunset and gone, wow? Looked at the ocean, wow. God looks at you and goes, you don't, you're, you're so much more beautiful than any mountain, any sunset, any ocean. You ever stop to think 
That's how God looks at you. And you know what? When you, when, you, when you begin to wrap your mind around that truth from Genesis 1, you begin to realize that when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't start loving you there. God has loved you from the foundations of the world. He prepared this place for you. And he will grab you in the arms of Christ and run through a wall to get you out of here because of the stain of our sin. If we'll just let him and trust him. You ever thought that that's the way God thinks of you? A second implication to that. Have you ever stopped to think that that's the way God thinks of others? You know, it's so tempting in our lives today to put a greater value on stuff, on created things, on stuff. Just, just by all of us. I mean, I, I struggle with this. I'm sure you do too. We put a value on stuff. We put a value on stuff. Have we ever stopped to think that Genesis 1 is telling us that there is a, there's a crescendo in creation. There's a value on people. If God values people, do you value them? Do you value them born the children that you see, the, the people that you see, the people that you interact with, and unborn. The fetuses that are developing in the wombs of mothers around the world. See, God values people above all other things on this planet. Do we value them also? See, we have an eternal Father who has prepared this place for us. We are the crescendo of his creation. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time today, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to look at it and to see that you love us, that you care for us, and that you provide for us, and you plan for us. No one required you to create us. Of your own free will, you created us because you love us and you want to have a relationship with us. Yet, Father, I know that in a room like this, that there are those who are with us today who do not have a relationship with you. There are those here that have never come to the point of realizing that you love them the way that we think of the awe we feel when we see a sunset. You think more of us than that. You love us. You would provide for us. And you long to scoop us up in the arms of Christ and carry us away from the burning destruction of our sin. Father, I pray if, if there are some here like that, that this morning they, they would be touched by your love for them and that they might begin to follow you and place their trust and their faith in you. Father, and I pray for all of us that we would see the, the love that you have for us. We would live as grateful children hearing this father's story. And that we would also embrace and love the crescendo and climax of your creation, humanity. Father, I thank you and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.